driving up and down the strip in Seattle looking at different options, all promising to giving him the satisfaction he craved. The terror he created was on the front page of the newspaper. The local news was sending their anchors out each night looking for answers. Answers the police weren't giving them. The woman stood in clumps along the sidewalk. His fear created that. His baseball cap pulled low to hide some of his features proved to be beneficial for his hunt. They knew of him, but no one could correctly identify him. Plus, with his ingenious switching up of vehicles meant that anyone seeing him with a missing woman would give the description of a vehicle. Sometimes, these matched, but thanks to the new paint job on his brother's truck, he was able to pull another one over their eyes. He had several slip-ups, thinking of the man who waved as he drove off with the girl he knew. The girl he couldn't remember. At this point, the summer heat was working its way in, which meant more women would be out at night. A buffet laid out for him. He didn't think that he could ever gain more pleasure than when he killed two in one night. And that was the ultimate release. But that was risky, and if he wanted to keep hunting, he needed to reduce the number of risks when he was hunting the next prey. No, he needed to be satisfied to one woman a night, but now he was hunting during longer periods. His cluster killing was no longer spanning weeks. No, now it was lasting months, with mere weeks in between them. Thanks to a strike, he had nothing better to do with his time but to plan. Plan the next hunt, the next kill, the next dump. He had to change up the places he was dumping because once the bodies of his women were began being found, the police's eyes were on it, waiting, watching, hoping he would slip up. They would think, but he was too careful. The police had come to his house. Another victim's boyfriend tracked him down and came back with police, but he was confident that he sold a believable story. Deny, deny, deny. He hunted at night. All dark vehicles looked the same under the light of streetlights and neon, but it was still a close call. No, he needed to seize the women who refused to fear him who worked alone or was standing alone after her partner was picked up for her own date, then he would pounce. His truck grumbles up and down as the man behind the wheel scans the women. The next one was here. He just needed to pick her and wait for her to become vulnerable. And then he would make his move. The sight of his son's toy next to him caught his eye. He had made the conscious decision to leave that toy. He wasn't clever enough to socially talk the women into being comfortable, but the toys he kept in his truck helped him sell that he was harmless. He circled the same two or three blocks, looking, searching, waiting for the right opportunity to present itself. Just then, there was the woman he wanted next. She was young, attractive, 
Her auburn hair fell in waves framing her face. She was perfect. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight we continue on in the terror spreading through Seattle. 1982 turned into 1983, and there was a few women here and there taken from the Strip in the early months of 83. But as the weather warmed the city during the day, it also drawled out from the shadows the man responsible for killing the women of the night. The warmer it got, the more the women disappeared. It was evident to the task force their killer had a type. Young, pretty, vulnerable sex workers. He needed to have the odds in his favor, and each woman that had gone missing on their list fit that very description. The same with the women who were being stumbled upon in their dumping sites, discarded like trash littering the ground around them. Their serial killer was just getting started. Warning, this episode contains graphic detail of sex, murder, and adult language. Listeners' discretion is advised. If you feel like any of this may be too much for you, please skip this episode or have someone listen with you or for you. Good evening, my true crime nerds. I hope you all survived the family gatherings. You ate too much, you laughed too hard, and only pulled a little of your hair out. We have just a little bit of housekeeping to get to tonight. Don't forget to head over to the truecrimelibrarian.com and have a look around. From there, you can support the show by clicking that donate button or by shopping through the merch store, picking something up for the other nerds in your life just in time for Christmas morning. But don't forget to spoil yourself in the process and sport the gear from your favorite show. You can support the show without a penny leaving your pocket by recommending or reviewing the show. This tricks the algorithms into promoting my show so that other true crime nerds can find the librarian. If you are on the tube, don't forget to subscribe to my channel and ring that notification bell so that you never miss an episode. Don't forget to hit a thumbs up at the end of the episode so that it is more likely to be recommended to those watching other channels similar to mine. Again, this helps spread the word and the more we have tuning in, the longer I get to stick around 
diving deeper into the cases that you all want to hear. Be on the lookout for just in time for Christmas, the TTCL will launch Patreon. This will get you through the holiday break until TTCL returns in January for the premiere of season four. All right, enough of all of this. Let's get to what you all came here for, the true crime. So last week, we were still working our way through Gary's extensive victim list. Even more women went missing, but their bodies were not turning up quite as fast as they were going missing. Gary was working under the cover of darkness and in an area where not remembering a face was common. These women worked until the money they've earned was enough they could go home. During Gary's hunting trips, going home with their life was worth way more than the money they had earned. Tonight, we kick it off with victim number 28. Her name was Yvonne Shelley Antosh. She was born April 8, 1964, and she was just 19 when Gary Leon Ridgway picked her out of all the women working the strip that night of May 31, 1983. Now, the little bit about Yvonne that we do know is that she had recently moved to Seattle from Vancouver, British Columbia with her childhood best friend. She'd only been working the strip and selling herself for a couple of weeks when Gary pulled up and asked her for a date. Ridgway was hunting for pleasure and to pass time as he was still on strike at Kenworth the night that Yvonne went missing. We know he withdrew $20 that night from an ATM on Pacific Highway South. Yvonne went back to Gary's home when she took his offer for a date. Somewhere that the chance of being caught was basically non-existent, so these women were comfortable with that because that meant they may not go to jail that night. But in turn, it ended up costing her her life. He killed Yvonne right there in his bedroom. Then he loaded her up into his pickup and took her out to Auburn Black Diamond Road, and he dumped her body. Victim number 29, Carrie Royce, a.k.a. Silver Champagne, on the strip. She was born February 15, 1968, and she was just 20 when she went missing. Unfortunately, with Carrie, there is little to be known about her disappearance. They give an estimated time that she went missing is somewhere between May 31st, 1983 and June 13th, 1983. Her official date of death is listed as March 31st, 1983. If, in fact, she went missing on that day, it was the same day that Yvonne went missing. And it meant that Gary was becoming more comfortable with his killing and his ability to get away with it. And killing multiple women in one night offered a satisfaction beyond he, what he really knew. We do know that he had killed two women on the night of April 17th of 1983. But that was the only time we did know for a fact that he killed two women in one night. However, here we're estimating. And a coroner has to lay down a date of death after the evaluation and, and kind of where they think that they died for records. So even though the investigators don't know exactly when she went missing, because of course there were people that are like, oh no, I saw her this day or she was here doing this on this day. 
that's what gave us the time frame between May 31st and June 13th because the memory of those saying that they had seen her was not accurate and it left a little to be imagined. So they listed her date of death as May 31st, 1983. We are going to go with that date because it is official record. However, it does not mean that's exactly what happened because we know very little about what happened when she went missing. Carrie's background was more than troubled. She bounced around as their kid and her mom had married multiple men. By the time she got to stepdad number three, she learned what it was like to be sexually abused. Stepdad number three abused her and touched her. He was a little touchy-feely little bastard. And Carrie told someone about the encounter with her stepfather. Because it was just at that time, it was her word against his, nothing was done. Nowadays, you, you scream that if a child screams somebody touched them in their home, they're immediately removed from the home until the investigation can be completed. However, in 1983, not the case. Well, not even 1983. In the 1960s, 70s, because she was born 68, so 1970s, they left her in the home. But then he touched her again. And this time when she told somebody, she was removed from her mother's custody and sent to live with her father. But rumor is, by the time she got to her father, she learned what physical abuse was because he wasn't any better than stepdad. He would lose his patience with her and then he would hit her. She claims to be hit in the head, which left lumps and bruises on her scalp. She was so tired of being mistreated. No matter who she was living with, she took off and would run away and try to do things on her own. She was just tired of being let down everywhere she went. With all that Carrie had been through during her childhood, sexual abuse, physical abuse, bouncing around between family and friends, before she eventually ended up in a group home, she wanted a normal life, but to her, that was just a wish scattered in the wind. In high school, Carrie joined the marching band. Her grandfather purchased her a flute. He was hoping that if she sank herself into the instrument and into the band, she would kind of settle down a little because she was very wild. But that's also indicative of a child who doesn't get the attention at home that they need for nourishment. And so they are acting out in order to get that attention. So this was just an effort to maybe direct her back to a different path in life and hopefully put her back on this straight and narrow. And it did until some little snot-nosed boogerhead child took her flute and stole it out of her locker. And then Carrie began to spiral after that incident. And she would eventually start to party way more than she was. And she was experimenting with illicit drugs, with pot, coke, alcohol. None of it erased the memories she was desperate to get rid of. Carrie turned to working the strip to make ends meet. She would work between South 144th and South 142nd Street. This, From this two-block walk, 
Gary took Denise Bush from the 7-Eleven that's located inside that two blocks. He also took Sandra Gabbert from the covered bus stop that is located there. This was where these women are going missing from shows a lot more of how and where Gary liked to hunt. He was familiar with this few couple of blocks. He kind of started recognizing the women because they were out there all the time. He knew who would work together, when they would split. He was watching the pattern of these women. And the police were trying to watch that same pattern. And had they really narrowed it down, they probably would have picked their guy up long before he his arrest. Now, Carrie had this friend. Her name was Margaret. And the two had kind of run away together and started this life of being a sex worker and doing shit on their own. And she, she remembers this time that Carrie told her about a weird date she experienced with a John. The John picked her up. And instead of finding a secluded area for the two to have sex, they drove close to the summit of Squalami Pass. I totally butchered it. We're going to keep going. Keep going to see the snow before he returned her back to the strip. The friend described the man as white, wearing baseball cap, drove a brown and tan or brown and white truck with a white camper on the back. This entire encounter she labeled as being very weird. In hindsight, just the minimal description is very fitting to Gary and his vehicle. Although it's not fitting for him to pick somebody up like that and return them. Generally, if he was going to the strip, whoever got into his vehicle was not going to make it back to the strip that night. However, we do know of instances before his killing spree started that he would just frequent the strip and have sex with sex workers because he could. Gary had a very insatiable sex drive, if we want to label it something. Gary would eventually take Carrie's life and dump her out at Star Lake Road. Victim number 30, Constance Elizabeth Known, was born June 29th, 1962. She would be murdered by Gary on June 8th, just shy of her 21st birthday. She was working at Alberto's local sausage factory, but she had developed a very excessive and expensive coke habit. And so in order to supplement the income of her day job, she would go make some money by working the strip. Here's the thing with Constance. Once she had made enough in order to obtain the drugs she wanted for the night, she was done. So she would only turn two or three tricks and she was done. She would get into her car, drive her very prized Camaro, something she was very proud of owning. She would take it down to the Red Lion Inn at 188. She would work that corner. Then once she was done, she'd go pick up her drugs and go home. On June 8th, Connie came home after her shift at the local factory and told her boyfriend, who she shared her apartment with, that she was going to go to a friend's house and pick up some coke. She changed her clothes and she was off in the night and that was the last time she was seen alive. Several weeks after Connie disappeared, 
Her family found her Camaro parked at the Red Lion Inn. It was locked up, and inside the entire thing was dusty. Nothing had been touched in that time that Connie had left to go earn some money for her drug habit and never returned. Gary talks about Connie. He, there's very little known about Connie in her early life. There's very little known about her disappearance. The only thing that was very notable to Gary in his interview was that he had considered going back and taking her Camaro and stealing it. But in the end, he decided that was too risky because it would be something that could be traced back to him. So instead, he left the car sitting. And this showed Connie's parents that she had been gone for quite some time. But as far as anything else, that's all we know. Victim 31. She's much like Connie. Her name is Kelly Marie Ware. She was born November 19th, 1960. She would die at the hands of Green River Killer on July 8th, 1983. He killed her and dumped her out on Star Lake Road. She would become the last victim to be dumped at this site. Three days later, after Gary killed Kelly, he went back and revisited her remains. His son was in his truck when he did this, and he was asleep. And so Gary pulls over on the side of this road. He gets out. He goes and has sex with Kelly's body. It had not yet reached a level of decomp that he was uncomfortable with. So he went and had sex with her. Just as he's finishing up this sex act, he notices there is a police officer who had stopped to investigate why his truck was parked on the side of the road. So Gary's coming out of the bushes. The officer's asking, you know, what are you doing? And Gary just says, you know, I had to take a piss. The cop's like, oh, okay, well, have a good night. That's it. But because that encounter happened, that sealed in Gary's mind that that dump site was no longer usable. He had been placed at the crime scene and he was done returning to it. He needed to make sure that it was just a one and done kind of thing. And it was because the police officer never documented pulling over and talking to Gary that night. But Gary could remember this as being the, the moment to end Star Lake Road as his dump site. Victim number 32, her name is Tina Marie Thompson. She was born September 18th, 1960, and was just 22 years old when she became the next victim to disappear on July 25th, 1983. Gary was just at his one-year mark of killing, although there is speculation that Gary was killing in the 70s, if not slightly sooner. But there's no evidence to confirm murderers at that point, even though Gary himself does admit that he was killing long before he really started as the Green River Killer. But as far as we know, he's at his one-year mark. Another girl who worked the streets with Tina said that her pimp had talked to Tina earlier that day on the 25th, but she was unable to be reached following that. We know that Ridgeway did not work on the 24th, 
and was able to report to Kinsworth at 6.45 a.m. the morning of Tina's death. So the night before or the morning of, Gary worked through that point where he kidnapped Tina, had sex with her, and killed her. Ridgway claims to have killed her inside of his house. They were in his bedroom where he had killed a lot of other women before Thompson. And he remembers she slipped out of his hold. He had her in like a chokehold with his arm. And she managed to wiggle free and she took off towards the front door. Gary catches her just at the front door and strangles her right there inside of the front door of his home. He would load her body up and dump her near the intersection of Highway 18 and Interstate 90. She was wrapped in plastic. While Tina was missing, another woman was found. Shonda Summers' remains were found. She was located at South 146th and 24th Avenue South. Gary had buried her just below an apple tree. We do not know too much about how she was discovered. It was not talked about very much inside of the interviews, nor is it really talked about in any of the um, books that I have on Gary or any further documentation I have about Shonda Summers and what happened to her and how she came to be found. All we know is that on the same night, that Tina was dying, investigators were stumbling on another body of Gary's. We're going to take a moment here for a short break for our sponsors, and we'll be right back. All right, welcome back. We are going to kick it off with victim number 33, April Dawn Butram. She was born September 1st, 1965. She was just 17 years old when she had her encounter with Gary on August 18th, 1983. She'd only been a sex worker for about a month when she accepted a date from Gary. She was taken from Rainier Avenue South and her pimp never reported her missing. He just assumed this life was not for her and she ran away. April went from a seemingly normal child uh, to a very defiant teenager who only wanted to party and experiment with illicit drugs. At one point, her very small petite frame reached 175 pounds, which she was barely five foot tall, so on her it was extra weight. But once she started using the drugs, she slimmed down and she had a lot more confidence in herself. And I think that's what helped her slip into the world of being a sex worker. Although she didn't fit in with a crowd. She stood out in a southern farm, local square dance kind of style that she had. And this made her very unique in her work. The other thing is, is April came from a very good family. And she had a trust fund set up for her with approximately $10,000. She would inherit that on her 18th birthday. Well, considering she died just one month shy of that, that money was never touched. And her mother knew no matter where she was, she was going to be there on her 18th birthday in order to pick this trust fund up. She was not going to miss that unless 
something really bad had happened, which it did. Gary picked her up. He had sex with her and then he killed her. And then he buried her body near Lake Fernwick and it was underneath this giant fern. Gary would later go back to the site and he would take April's skull to go to add it to Denise Bush and Shirley Sherrill's and take it to Oregon. Although her bones were discovered at the dump site, her skull has yet to be recovered. Victim number 34. Her name was Debbie May Abernathy. She was born May 25th, 1957. She, her boyfriend, and their son moved from Waco, Texas to Seattle, Washington. They were on in the search of a better life than what they were living. But soon after they moved to Seattle, money got really tight. They ended up losing their apartment and had ran into this really nice couple who extended an offer. They said, you know, why don't you move in with us? We have a spare bedroom. You can stay with us while you save up some money to get another place. And they took the couple up on that offer. During this time, Debbie picked up being a sex worker as a way to earn money for her family. And she liked to work the corner of 8th and Pike downtown. She walked out of the house she was staying in on the afternoon of September 5th, 1983. And she was never seen alive again. Ridgeway was off work that day due to it being Labor Day. We know he fueled his truck and took money from an ATM on the day that Debbie disappeared. Gary took this young mom's life and dumped her 0.2 miles from mile marker 37 on Highway 410 next to Wirehooser Mainline and White River. Debbie had left her Texas driver's license back in his pickup and he ended up throwing it out the window along Highway 18. Officers recovered her identification card on that highway. Here's the strange thing about the date that she disappeared. This happened to be Gary's eight, his son's eighth birthday. Now, we talk a lot about his son because he likes to utilize the fact that he's a father in order to ease the nerves of the girls he's picking up to kill. But for the fact that he could not contain himself, could not control that urge that he ended up out killing on the night of his son's birthday, to me is very disheartening. I feel like that in the long run, the only reason Gary really had anything to do with him is because he offered a cover story for him in his killing sprees. That's really all I obtained from all of this. Through everything I've read, Matthew is mentioned time and time again, but it's only the only time he's really mentioned with his father is when he's in the vehicle and his father is transporting a dead body or his father's on the side of the road having sex with a girl who's been dead for days or his items are in his truck in order to sell the fact that he's a family man. None of it that I read shows that Gary was, you know, two feet in all the way being a father. If Matthew hadn't come along, 
Gary's life wouldn't be any different. That's just how I'm picking up on his relationship and how he treated his son throughout this time period. Things could have changed for later on in life as he got older, but for this point, he was nothing but a pawn in his whole entire game. Victim number 35. Tracy Ann Winston was born on September 29th, 1963. She was just 19 years old when Gary would pick her up and never take her back. Tracy had a friend who others knew as Gary that would give her rides here and there. And a friend went on a ride one time with Tracy and her friend Gary. And even though the friend recalls never looking directly at Gary, she could remember looking at him through the rearview mirror because he was looking back at her. He never actually turned and laid eyes on her. He used the rearview mirror to size her up. And something about it all just really gave her the creeps and she ended up coming up with a reason for them to pull over and let her out of the car. Well, her friend gets out, but Tracy stays and she goes with Gary and they leave the friend right there on the side of the road. On the evening of September 12th, 1983, Tracy called a man that she had previously dated and asked for help with money with her rent. So the man brought her some money to help her pay her rent. She paid it. Then she asked him for a ride to Northgate Mall. It's reported that the man brought her back to the motel at about 6 p.m. that evening. There was no description of the man who paid her rent or the man that really kind of creeped the friend out. They really couldn't give anything that would make him look any different than a normal man riding up and down the strip. Up until this point, Gary seemed to only hunt during week nights and investigators were looking at this and they were a little baffled but they were coming to the conclusion that maybe there was some kind of significance to him only hunting on the weeknights because it was very exclusive at this point Monday through Friday but when Tracy agreed to accept a date with Gary he broke that and this flipped investigators on their heads once again Here's the thing with Tracy. She had a rough childhood as well, as many of them do, but she still stayed in contact with her parents. And the last time her parents saw her alive, physically laid eyes on her, was Mother's Day of 1983. She would be reported missing just weeks after she went missing. And this... This was the, you know, weeks after anybody on the strip had seen her alive. There, you know, she hadn't been calling home, which she normally did. Things were weird. So they end up calling in and reporting her as missing. Then a couple days later, Molinax calls them back and he has something to share about their daughter's disappearance due to her profession, due to her age. Due to the area that she was known to work, everything fit the profile for her to be a victim of the GRK. He'd never confirmed at that point that she was a victim, but he did let them know that she would be moved over to their division and her missing person report would be investigated by them as she did fit that profile. 
But he also told the parents, you know, don't give up hope. I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But I just needed you to know this is how we are taking, how serious we are taking your daughter's disappearance. As Tracy is gone missing, we have another body that is found. Gail Matthews, her name would be removed from the missing column and added to the victim column when her mostly skeletal remains were found near Star Lake Road. She was one of the victims dumped up there. And the girls are starting to pop up uh, a little more frequently, but not as frequently as they are going missing. Victim number 36 is Maureen Sue Feeney. She was born October 5th, 1963, and she was just 19 years old when her life ended. With the amount of cases out there, it's inevitable that I would find a connection with one on more levels than normal. Here's the thing with Maureen. I share a birthday with her, which doesn't happen in the real world too often. Apparently, my birth date is on the rare side of having common birthdays. It wasn't a, it's not a day where a lot of people, ha you know, have babies. It's, it's weird. I'm, I don't even know. I'm just, if you know me, you know I'm weird, and it's fine. But to find a commonality between me and a victim that I'm currently researching, it stopped me in my tracks, literally, because then the date that she was found was my little brother's birthday. And so to have so many of these parallel with my family and in my life, it, it took me back. I had to stop. I had to walk away because sometimes you can disconnect with the story that you're telling. Sometimes. Most of the time I find something within each victim that I could label as part of something I do, right? But I'm not a sex worker. So there's that. I don't live in Seattle. There's that. Um, but to find her to have a birthday of mine and then go have her remains found on the birthday of my little brother, it was very surreal. And like I said, sometimes you can detach. It's possible. Sometimes it's like they're just a character in a story and they are, except for what happened to them in the story happened to them in real life. That's the underside of true crime. It's a, it's a story that draws you in. It offers just enough um, suspense to keep you interested. But at the end of the day, most of us, even though we know we're reading nonfiction, most of us can't relate on that level. But when you see their face smiling back at you and you see your birth date listed as their birth date, it's very disconcerting. Even if it was 22 years before you came along, it binds you to reality when you find a connection with the victim. They're a human who lived in the, who lived the words that are in black and white that you're reading. They're not a character in a book. This is not fiction. This is reality. These people 
these women went missing and you know I go through and I'm digging through their lives and I'm putting together as much as I can but when that comes smacking you in the face when you least expect it it slows you down and makes you step back and really look at what you're researching and it becomes even worse than what you realize prior to finding that parallel so I had to step back from this case at this point when I came to Maureen because of that. I've taken up for these women because I don't think that they should be judged based off their profession. I've stuck up for these women because not one of them, none of them did something in their life that would justify what happened to them and how they left this world. And I stand up for a lot of my victims. They're not perfect. They're really not. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We all do stuff that if somebody else was looking in, they'd be like, well, because you did it that way, you deserved it. You know, I can't stand that mentality. Nobody deserves to die like this. Nobody, no family deserves to find out that their loved one was murdered because, you know, a guy couldn't keep it in his pants. But when you have something like this really hit home for you, it takes you to another level. Um, all right, I'll get down. We'll get back to the story here. Maureen was working inside of a daycare. She had not quite started selling herself. She was working a day, in a daycare, but things were just not going the way she wanted them to. And she quit her job on September 27th, just the day before she was last seen alive. She had recently become involved with a new boyfriend. And that is where most people say that they saw life change for Maureen. She moved from her apartment and into her boyfriend's apartment. Here's the thing about this guy. This guy pisses me off and really gets underneath my skin. His girlfriend was changing, probably due to his mental persuasions. When first asked if she was performing as a sex worker, he denied knowing anything. Although she had just recently received a citation for jaywalking. And I do know that jaywalking is a common citation handed out to sex workers at the time because they were constantly across back and forth across the street. They weren't using, you know, the marked areas. Shame, shame. But this coming up is a flag that she's walking that street for just more than needing to cross it at an, you know, at the wrong way, at the wrong crosswalk kind of thing. So when they set him down and they, they question him further after her disappearance, he claims that, well, she might have been a sex worker. But I found this thing. I found the newspaper. It was open to the want ads on her dresser. And she had this position circled and it was for an exotic dancer at a local club called Sugar and the name Bob was written out in her handwriting in the margins of that one ad. So it took some pressure for him to reveal this. You would think that a boyfriend whose girlfriend had gone missing, you would be far more concerned, but he really wasn't. I will give it to him though because when her family called, he was like, I haven't seen her. 
instead of making up some bullshit excuse as to why she couldn't come to the phone, he he does say, I, I haven't seen her. And here's, here's what I've kind of deduced from this jerk. He didn't really love Maureen. Not in the way that a boyfriend should be falling for a girlfriend, right? He didn't really love her. What he did love was that she was willing to do work and he was getting a percentage of said work. Well, he couldn't really take something out of her income, but if I put her on the street and she's having sex, it's illegitimate. I can force her to pay me a percentage by blackmailing her, saying that he was going to turn her in as a sex worker or what have you. Whatever the deal is. He was very comfortable for her to go to, go to her day job, earn money to keep their apartment paid for, and very comfortable to send her out into the street to sleep with random men to earn more money, and that money he could take. So way, in the end, he doesn't have to get off his ass and go find a job because he can force her basically into sex slavery and make a percentage off that. Well, no, shit. You don't have to go to work and you're still earning money? Sounds like a good life, right? Well, for everybody involved except for Maureen. This guy just, he got under my skin really bad. Maureen's family did file her as missing on September 30th of 1983. After she was reported missing, a neighbor in the same apartment complex as Maureen and her boyfriend revealed that he believes on the night that she disappeared, Maureen and her boyfriend were arguing in the hallway. And you and I both know with this kind of recollection, the boyfriend was looked at more closely. Before, he's just this insensitive ass. And now he's this very suspicious and sensitive ass. But in the end, he was cleared of any wrongdoing and their instinct was right. Maureen was more than a candidate for the GRK. She was a victim of the GRK. Victim number 37, Mary Sue Bello. She was born December 22nd, 1957, and she was 25 years old when she died at the hands of Seattle's current serial killer. Mary was no different. She had a rough childhood. She felt like she was robbed of those simple moments, and she eventually got to a point where she wanted to be in control of her life because with each turn, she was being disappointed time and time again. Here's the thing. 99% of these women were brought up with hardship, either through money or through drug-addicted parents or being molested, bullied, whatever the case may be. They were all had, well, not all, most of them had a trouble, troubled childhood. And... They were just tired. They were fed up. They were tired of being disappointed. And at least this way, at least being a sex worker, they knew the Johns, they were there for one thing. They knew what these men expected of them. There was no gray area. There was no guessing. And at least if they were going to be taken advantage of, well, you might as well be compensated for it, right? 
Well, when Mary Sue was 13, she was committed to Grand Mound, Washington State Training School for Adolescent Girls. She had a really hard time obeying orders. She's very defiant. And by the time any kind of structure really came into her life, she had been so used to doing whatever she wanted that the orders she was giving, she didn't follow. She, you know, who... Who are you and why are you telling me what to do kind of thing? And this put a strain on her relationship with her mother. This put a strain on her relationship with her grandparents. Because there for a while, Mary Sue thought her mother was her sister and her grandparents were her parents. Her mother was only 15 when she had Mary Sue. So the two of them were forced to grow up together Along with the fact that Mary's mother was forced into marrying Mary's father, which he wasn't a good man anyways, and that turned to shit. And so they ended back up with their grandparents. But Mary Sue was just done. Life had already been hard, and she thought, what the hell, I can probably do better. And she filed for emancipation at the age of 15. This is where Mary Sue may have turned to being a sex worker. It For her, it would be a means to the end. In her eyes, no one was going to get her to take her eyes off the finish line. She was determined, you know, I'm going to make better choices for myself. And I'm going to make a better life for me. And if this is the first stepping stone, fuck it. We're doing it and we're going to keep going forward. Mary had a very particular personality. She was, I do it my way. Don't tell me what to do. I'll get it done. You just sit over there and you watch kind of thing. But Mary didn't love her mother. And so she kept in touch with her. But her mother often banished her about her line of work, telling her, you know, there's this risk and now... Gary's out terrorizing Seattle's women of the night. You really shouldn't be doing this. But Mary said, you know, I'm being careful. I'm taking precautions. I'm not going to fall victim to him. I'm smarter. I'm going to take the, the appropriate steps in order to stay off his radar. And we're just going to keep on living life the way we've been living. But Mary had some sort of fear. I would say, because she had called the task force several times during the months prior to her murder to tell them about a weird or out of place John that she had just saw, or one time she had just gotten out of this car with this really creepy man who had a lot of knives and stuff, but this man only drove, this man drove a four-door sedan, Gary drove a truck, so there was another weirdo out there running around, but luckily he wasn't taking the lives of others that we know of. So she was vigilant in that department. She would look out. She would take these precautions. She was going to be smart about this. Mary felt like she had earned quite a bit of knowledge in her short time on this earth. At some point, she got hooked up with this guy who decided one night when they were out together, that he was going to commit a robbery. She was in the car. She never got out of the car. She never partook in the robbery. Nothing. But because she was there, in the car, and did nothing after the fact, 
Well, she was charged with burglary and an accessory after the fact, and she ended up serving a short stint in prison. Well, a lot of people go in there with very little common sense knowledge is what I call it, not others call it street knowledge or whatever. So she went in with very little, but she came out with a whole lot. So she felt like she had life figured out and she wasn't going to let this guy scare her off from earning the money she needed to earn. On October 11th of 1983, Mary Sue left. She was going downtown to, she was going to downtown Seattle. She was going to work for a little bit of money and she was never seen again. Gary picked Mary Sue up sometime after about 7.51 p.m. from what we can speculate. Because here's what we know about Gary's evening. He left work at 6.35 p.m. He drove to South 172nd and Pacific Highway South. He filled up his truck at a Texaco gas station. Then he withdrew $40 from the ATM at 7.51 p.m. He picked up Mary Sue. The two agreed to the terms of their date. It's likely they had sex. Gary needed that routine sex kill dump in order to get the ultimate satisfaction. So the thought of him straight killing any of these women is a hard pill to swallow because he needed sex. It was his way of release and he needed it to happen in his preferred way. Not this bullshit where they're like, oh, no, I'll suck your dick, but you're not going to stick it in me kind of thing. He didn't like that. That pissed him off. He wanted to have his way. A lot of these women, I'm assuming, did let him have this way because he didn't have very much to say about their encounter during his interviews. He was a grown man with an insatiable appetite for sex. So to think that he didn't, well, that's like thinking Bigfoot exists. It doesn't fucking happen. Mary Sue was dumped at mile marker 34 just off of Highway 410 after he was done with her. Victim number 38 is a lot like the rest of our victims. Her name is Pammy Annette Event. She was born November 23rd, 1966. And she was just 16 years old when she was picked up for her final date. On October 26, 1983, Pammy was working down around the Rainier Valley in Seattle. And she had just left her mother's home and was going to work. And that was the last time she was seen alive. Gary picked up Pammy and the two agreed to the terms of their date. And then he dumped her lifeless body at mile marker 26 on Highway 410 across the street from the Corliss gravel pit. She was found next to a log. Nature would cloak this body from the eyes of investigators. And unfortunately, she was not found until Gary led them to her. That's all we know about Pammy. There's nothing really about her early life, nothing about the troubles that led her to what she did, nothing about her disappearance. It was almost as if she vanished into thin air. Our last victim for tonight's episode is 
Victim number 39, Delise or Missy Louise Plager. She was born May 16, 1961. Missy was one of two born, babies born that day. Her twin brother was born without any complications. However, Missy was born dead. Thankfully, a nurse used her training and was able to resuscitate the infant. Many believe that because of the lack of oxygen during birth, it led to Missy having issues with ADHD. But it's likely that it was as a result of Missy's mother's drinking habits during her pregnancy. Before Missy and her brother turned five, they were taken away from their mother. Her drinking had finally led to her being labeled as an unfit mother. During the adoption process, Missy and her brother were separated, and in hindsight, this may have furthered her insecurities following her adoption. Her adoptive parents were ecstatic to have this appealing child, but were not prepared for the difficulties that would come with her. Missy, and especially her adoptive mother, often were butting heads. The ADHD medication didn't seem to make parenting her any easier, and they finally came to the decision she, to send her to Antonian School for Special Children. She would stay there Monday through Friday for schooling and um, additional aid. And then on the weekends, she was able to go home. But on the weekends, they would medicate her with ADHD medications. The nun or, or house mother from school didn't believe that these hyperactive children should be heavily medicated. So when Missy would return from her home visit, they would have to help her detox the medication out of her system and start over. It was like they would get two steps ahead with her and then send her home for the weekend only for her to come back and they're four steps behind where they were when she left on Friday. Eventually, they would decide to limit the amount of home visits for Missy and this really helped at school because there was something about Missy missing from who she really was. When she was younger, she was at home. The only bond, the only connection she had was with her twin brother. Her mom could not have cared less about the, these children. And then she was adopted and things were looking up. But then, you know, she ended up with a birth mother who she really had a hard time getting along with. And so at least at school, she was receiving the attention she craved. They were filling the void left behind when her brother and her were separated. And she was really coming to terms on how to deal with what was going on in her head. So this really turned out very well for Missy to not go home nearly as often. But there were times that her mother would come to visit her at school. This In this environment, controlled by the school it was great because her mother couldn't medicate her if they sent her home without any supervision well it was likely she was coming back heavily medicated because she was defiant and instead of you know trying to follow what was going on at school her birth mother her not her birth mother her adopted mother would just here take a pill and don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with it. If you have ADHD and you take some medication for it, great. 
you know what? I'm super proud that you were able to talk about your mental illness. I have ADHD. It's really bad, really bad, especially when I'm recording. Oftentimes you hear small little clanks. That's me dropping a pin that I'm fiddling with while I'm recording. I have to have something going on all the time. Otherwise, I'm going to get cranky and you're not going to want to really be around me. After Missy was done with school, her emotional problems continued to grow. They, they went dormant during her time at school, but once she was done with, with that part of her life, those emotional problems just came back and they just created a bigger hole. And in 1976 or 1977, somewhere around that time, Missy became pregnant with her first child. It was a little girl. Then in 1979, Missy was pregnant for the second time, this time with a little boy. And by this point, she was a single mom trying to fill the void that was left. So her brother, that connection she had with her brother, it's gone. She didn't really have a connection with her birth mother, didn't really have a connection with her adoptive mother. So it seems like these children were just something to help fill that void. But since her birth mother didn't offer anything in the way of an emotional bond, and then her adoptive mother shipped her off once she became difficult to handle, she was not equipped with the emotional know-how to raise her two children. And eventually, she would be found unfit as well. She loved her kids dearly. Don't get me wrong. She did. But she just didn't have the know-how in order to really get the most out of a bond between a mother and their child. And she really didn't know where to start or how any of it went. So when they took her children from her, she was supposed to go to these parenting classes. She was supposed to go to counseling sessions. And even though she did care, she had to figure out what was missing out of her before she could be whole and take her kids and raise them like they should be raised. Then she finds her birth father. And through finding her birth father, she finds her twin brother. And she moves down to Texas where they're all located and she thinks they're going to be this one big happy family. But they're not. Her birth father is not who she thought he was. Even though she loved her twin brother, it really didn't fill that void. So was it left behind? She didn't know. So she ends up moving from Texas to Arizona because that's where her birth mother is. And she tries to squeeze some sort of an emotional bond out of her. Guess what? That didn't happen either. Her mother basically told her one time that she wished the nurse wouldn't have resuscitated her when she was born. That was the biggest fuck you ever, right? Yeah, really was. So that didn't happen. That didn't fill this void that Missy had. And she eventually made her way all the way back to Seattle. On October 30th, 1983, Missy was out working the strip. Her hatred for men had really grown in her time away and now she simply used them as pawns to make money. 
She was still walking the strip, and then on October 30th, she accepted an offer for a date from Gary Ridgway. Gary had sex with Missy. He squeezed the life out of her, and then he dumped her on Exit 38 Road. Gary claimed to go back to where he dumped Missy, and he says he had sex with her remains. It's not the first time we know that he divulged in necrophilia, and it probably is not going to be the last as we dive into the latter part of this list. Investigators are at their wits end with this case. The task force is hemorrhaging taxpayers' money, and they don't have any more answers to the demanding questions coming from their citizens and those higher up as they did when they drug Wendy Cofield's body from the Green River. The demand for answers from the citizens was great, but those above them was even greater, and it was raining down on top of their heads, and they were carrying more weight than they should have on their shoulders. Solving this needed to come before another name was added to the confirmed list of victims of the man they dubbed the Green River Killer. Times were changing on the stretch of highway known as the Strip. Even though the women were going out in groups, limiting the amount of time they were there on their own, the man prowling the streets was there waiting and watching. When one would be left behind, alone, it was his cue to pull up and ask for a date. The toys in his vehicle relaxed the girls outside of the window. This helped when his words were not enough. The news of his actions left them on their toes. If he came off as weird, it could end before he even got started. But still the news was out there. They had been warned that it, the man police were searching for could be someone you know. With Melvin under surveillance, they were confused as to how he was going out and killing as he was still their number one suspect. Cabby stayed in the crosshairs, but the man they should be watching had been through the system before the murder of the first sex worker to go missing from the strip. His arrest in May 1982 came before the bodies, before the missing, before the police knew they needed to be looking for the Johns who frequented the strip. Still, his presence was there, but somehow he managed to stay out of the spotlight. He managed to take these women without any notice, Yes, he was weird, but still, he managed to keep going. Dump sites were being utilized until someone stumbled on them. Then he would shift and begin dumping somewhere else. Sometimes those dump sites would go for months, even years before being discovered. And if you, he was the only one to know about. He was nowhere close to being sated. 
Join me next week as we work our way through the last of the victims that are known to us today. But the help of one serial killer could be the thing to give an inside look at how a serial killer thinks and possibly lead investigators right to the man they've been searching for. But could they trust him? As always, I leave you with one last line. Looking for truth? Observe people's habitual behavior, patterns, cycles. The truth is in their patterns and cycles. Much love, the true crime librarian.